Welcome back, everyone, to Humans of SAS, where we podcast with the most extraordinary, ordinary humans that make up our community. Today's episode is no different, featuring someone quite integral to Seattle Academy, Jonathan Lee. His role has been varied throughout the year, but he has always played the same personality and his high fives and his spirited attitude. I'm super excited to get into it. It's actually our penultimate episode, second to last. So, Jonathan, I'm super excited to have you here. Let's get into it. Thank you, Ella. Happy to be here. How are you feeling about being a member of this podcast now? Um, I hope I can live up to the hype. You've had some really good people to come on before me, I'm sure afterwards, but I'm happy to be here. So thank you. I'm honored. No, I'm super excited to have you here. So Jonathan, will you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before SAS and the roles you were in before you entered the Seattle Academy community? Oh, perfect. So before I was at my um, alma mater, um, Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a 440-person boarding school that I attended. Um, coached basketball there for 15 years and worked as a dorm head, an advisor of ninth grade boys, and um, an admissions officer there. And then my wife got a job for Airbnb. Um, and that had us move out to Seattle. And since then, the rest is history. I've been a cardinal, a cardinal since. So when did you move to Seattle exactly? Oh my goodness, you're gonna hate this part. We moved to Seattle the week before the heat wave and my moving truck arrived the day of the heat wave. So it was 116 degrees, West Seattle, uh, two-story house, two kids and a dog and no air conditioning, which was unheard of from a Virginian. Uh, so it was miserable. <laughs> what a way to enter Seattle living. Yeah, everyone said, oh, it rains. It's so much better. You're going to be okay. And it was 116 degrees for three days. It was, it was pretty bad. That's very funny. Okay, so you mentioned your private school in Virginia that you that was your alma mater and you went to and then you were working there. What was your role there exactly? So uh, the role was ninth grade dorm parents, um, ninth grade advisor for boys, um, then ninth grade dorm head eventually, then assistant director of admissions. Um, I was a cross country coach during my time there, and then also a basketball coach, and was on several like different task forces with the board um, of trustees there as well. So a jack of all trades. And how many years were you working there for? I was coaching for 15 years total, and then I was only working there functionally as a faculty member for four years. Let's trace back a second. So you that was your alma mater, and what were you doing after high school and in that time between before you came back? So in between uh, working at my uh, old high school, I was doing project management and doing IT work, um, working to be a project manager. So I was doing things like my first series job was working for DARPA, who's known for creating the internet. And so I was looking at like PDF documents of top secret things and having to literally push them from like my floor and the third floor up to the 14th floor where someone would review them for make sure it was some top secret information. Then I worked for like a laser range finding company um, doing kind of quality control, having no experience with lasers and engineering. And so kind of just working on projects and deliverables. Were these were these passion projects in a sense? Did you know you wanted to get into that field to begin with or? No, there was nothing passionate about those projects. It was paying bills and getting out of college, knowing you needed a job. Um, my father was a project management uh, manager for the federal government for Homeland Security, and my mom was a civil servant for the government working at the Pentagon. So I had always heard about project management from them. So it's kind of just this track that I kept tracing and kept following. Um, but secretly, I always wanted to be in education or be a coach. So that was the passion part was with the kids, with the students. So what was the transition from that field into education? Um, I was offered the job by the former head of school at one point to be an admissions officer, denied it, was dating my fiance at the time, um, wanted to get engaged, got engaged. 
And unfortunately, my father got really sick with brain cancer, which he uh, um, eventually passed from. But that transition from the D.C. place I was to moving like literally a mile from my parents' house allowed me to be closer to my father and my parents. So that last moment where the job was offered a second time, I was like, okay, this I need to get closer to home. So that's what brought me back home. Okay. Yeah. So what exactly was your first role in the boarding school? Were you coaching? What were you doing exactly to begin with? So my one role was I had my day job. And amazingly with my um, day jobs, I'd always go on interviews and they said, well, long as you get your deliverables done and get your 40 hours in a week, you can always go coach. So I only missed like two or three practices really for the birth of my child um, to go to basketball games. And so really I would do my day job and then leave, go to practice, and then eventually stepped into the admissions role as an assistant director um, and then elite, eventually left as an associate director of admissions. So you were you did a lot there too, similar to how you spent your time here at SAS. What was your favorite role in that school? Oh, my favorite role... Um, would have to be being the dorm head of the ninth grade boys dorm. It's not chaotic. It's chaotic, but I lived in that chaos at one point and having like experienced that when I was there from ages 14 to 18 to see kids 20 years later do exactly what I did and be like, I told you so. And having to be an adult to kind of let them not hurt themselves, but make a silly decision. I found that to be the most rewarding part to be there with the teenagers. Yeah, totally. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you were an alumni of this of this boarding school, correct? So can you talk a little bit about the transition from being a student there to being an administrator and playing quite an integral role in all of the various forms you did? And what were some of those similarities and differences in the culture? And uh, just some of the silly pranks. Uh, the terminology, of course, changed. The technology changed, of course, with the telephone and the internet. Um, not that I'm that old. We had internet when I was there, but like Facebook didn't come out to my freshman year of college, but just the conversations of teenagers and not knowing faculty or thinking that we're like old dinosaurs or thinking we're not cool. And remembering I had the same thoughts about the adults around me. Um, also remembering what it was to be a good advisor or have a good advisor when I was there. And that's why I'm kind of the advisor that buys donuts here every day at SAS for my advisory. Cause that donut kind of buys you like a connection with the kids. And I realized as a kid, you just want connections. You don't really care about the academics as much. You just want to know that the faculty members know and see you. And that's something I've really relished and kept with me as a new person here. The connection aspect, I want to touch a little bit on later with the podcast and the nonprofit you're working on, but I want to stay on this for a second because I don't know very much about Virginia and the culture there and being at a boarding school. Can you speak to that a little bit more about what that experience is like? Um the boarding school experience, particularly on the East Coast, is kind of um, a old network of people that are kind of affluent and know about it. Um, there are some of the diverse people that learn about it through the different, what you call them CBOs, community-based organizations. Um, but particularly the New England boarding schools like Andover, Exeter, Hotchkiss are kind of the um, the measuring a stick, so to speak, of others. And then Episcopal High School is always ranked in the top 25 in the country there um, and ranked the first, if not second, best boarding school in the Virginia area. And so you kind of hear about it by word of mouth or by friends of friends that go there. Um, but it can be difficult sometimes breaking into that world, so to speak. Um, but then you also learn there are a plethora of uh, day schools, similar to SAS out there as well. Um, so something I got very lucky with a family that was going there, there were church members. They kind of stood in the gap for me to introduce the school to me. And it was a life-changing experience, um, similar to what it would be to go to SAS here. 
And uh, that's kind of the biggest thing for me is the importance of education of boarding school or day school, how amazing it can be as a conduit to kind of um, lift you up and to provide you circumstances that can be slightly no disrespect to public school, but um, the being one in a hundred, one in a thousand is that that ratio number is something I keep with me and I sell that as an admissions officer. I mean, private school, boarding schools have so many strengths over any public school experience. The ratio of student to teacher, faculty, everything were were there any experiences that you had that were though difficult being in Virginia, being in a place that is a boarding school and that kind of breeds a culture? And I know SAS, we, we feel this way in a lot of ways too, which breeds a culture of wealth in many aspects. And I know everyone's working towards kind of dismantling that too and this culture too, but did you experience that in any way? I certainly did. There's always a moment of being a person of color, particularly African-American, being black, where you're assumed to be on financial aid, where maybe you're on partial or you're a full pay family. Um, there's also the barbell of the have and have nots, that you have those highly affluent families, and then you have those families that certainly need financial aid. And having not only the students be mindful, but the parents be mindful of what it means to send a kid there, um, to be accepting of all people from all walks of life. Um, so particularly in Virginia, um, again, it's an old state, uh, also, my school was founded in 1839, so there's a lineage of people that are there um, that are disconnected. Uh, my former high school did not get its first African-American student until three years ago, but we accepted our first African-American students, I think, back in 1967, 19, in the 70s, basically. And so when you think about that, um, there are over 40 years of African-Americans that went there that had kids that didn't make the commitment until they did so three or four years ago. And so that's something I really... Um, take pride in sometimes and get embarrassed about other times about the disparity of wanting to be at a place and holistically be seen, um, which is so important to me. Where does the embarrassment come in? What? Um, for me, um, at times when you're a Christian school or it's a private institution, you have so many resources, um, the desire to kind of be slow in process, um, the desire to necessarily want to appease the masses, the majority of a demographic of people, knowing that there is a smaller minority of people that are um, being hurt and not necessarily wanting to upset uh, the process. And that's where the embarrassment sometimes comes from, of just wanting to speak up for everyone and saying, I know the majority of people may be safe and may be mindful and may be doing great, but even if it's one person, that one person is still hurting. And that's something I really take pride in and making sure those people are represented. So is that part of why you started the podcast and both the nonprofit that you're working on? First, I want to focus a little bit on the podcast side of it. So this is the Bridging Legacies Across Campuses podcast, correct? Can you talk a little bit about what that is doing and your role in it? So the podcast is for Bridging Legacies Across Campuses, um, and it's called Our Faces, Our Voices. And essentially, I'm a huge sports guy, you know that. And as I watch various athletic podcasts of NBA professionals talking about what it was like to guard Kobe Bryant or what it was like to play against Michael Jordan, I'm like, man, you're getting insights into the professional side of athletics through these guys that you would never be able to talk to. So how unique would it be to take a demographic of diverse graduates from colleges, universities, predominantly white institutions, and have their voices on a podcast for other diverse students and other ally students and other students that may not be allies to hear that? And so on my podcast, I ask four questions to particularly any um, diverse student. One is, who are you? Who are you today? What are you doing? The other question is, um, how did you end up at your PWI college and university? Um, then it says, when did you discover you were diverse? When did you discover you were black in your atmosphere? 
Um, then the last question says, knowing what you know now, um, going back to high school or college, what would you tell your younger self? And I find the synergy and connection and similarities from all different walks of life, all different ages, people 40 years apart. There's some, some over, some, some overlap in those stories that are so unique. And I just think that that's my kind of purpose of waking up in the morning is to connect those stories together in the same way you're doing this with these voices of having people provide different personalities and insights, which is very commendable what you're doing as well. I appreciate that. Um, so who exactly are these people that you are podcasting with? How are you finding them? Are these connections that you've already built and established? Are these random people? Who are they? So some of the people that I reach out to are just organically people I know, I've met, gone to school with. Um, I've been able to step into the um, in entrepreneurship leadership class and building a business class here at SAS. So some of the kids have heard this a lot, but I use LinkedIn. I actually go through LinkedIn and type in, let's just say Seattle Academy as a school. I press the alumni button. Then I look for brown faces and I connect with them. And once they connect with me, I send them a canned message of my vision and mission in my video. And then I send them a calendar link to my calendar and get on their calendar to meet. And so I wake up every morning about five and take two calls. They're about 10 to 15 minutes each prior to getting on my bicycle to ride from West Seattle um, to just talk to these different strangers to get them to join and provide their bios. Um, so it's a busy morning for me, but I'm um, a lot of fun. No, I mean, to me, it's just fascinating and awesome. All of the things that you are up to and let alone on top of everything that you have done in the SAS community this past year. Um so you mentioned some overlap between responses you've gotten and interviews you've had with different people. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those exchanges that you've had and those overlapping conversations or just different conferences in interesting ones? Of course. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is about the family that got me to my private school. Um, one of the colleagues talked about standing in the gap, that when there's a moment where you're trying to get from point A to point B or further that you may not be able to get there, but someone or something steps in its place to provide that conduit to get you there. And so many of these families, it was, if you're a black kid, you were doing something and you had a white neighbor or a white teacher, and that white teacher's like, you should really think about going to this New England school or this other boarding school as an opportunity to change your circumstances. So that person stands in a gap there. So you hear that narration, or my church member did the same for me, or me being a missions officer, standing in a gap for everyone I get to interview from all walks of life. Those are the, some of the common synergies. Um, some of the discussion was about, well, Jonathan, you're doing something very purposeful for African-American students. Um, there'll be times where people will say, oh, no, you need to do it for everyone. And one of the guys and several people have said it, when you have different um, athletic banquets for basketball only, and it's a boys basketball team, do you invite the girls swim team to that event? And I was like, no. So it's like, why is there a moment where you're trying to build something for African-Americans or minority? Why do you have to invite the other side to it? when this is about this build-up moment. And that's like a common thread in some of the messaging I get. Um, and part of it is, again, just relating to regular life, is not being discouraged. A lot of people say, just keep working, keep grinding, um, keep speaking up. And that's some of the overlapping conversations of like, don't give up, just keep working hard. Do you feel like you have bridged that gap? Or is there something more you're trying? Like, what is... Do you feel fulfilled with what you've been able to accomplish with in doing this? Do you feel like these responses have been gratifying to hear? Or is there more that you want to do this to continue and grow into something larger? Yeah, I'd say no, I'm not happy with the effort so far. That is great with some of the things. I just celebrated my 35th different school posts of different graduates. Um, well, that is great. And I have like over 170 posts or so I've created. 
Um, there's still more work to be done. I don't have any connections um, or contracts with any schools to kind of do what I'm trying to do with building this network through alumni development, through um, engagement. Um, so I have so much more that I want to do. And there's still things that happen in the world academically and worldwide that still show that that gap has not been filled. And so, no, I'm not done yet. So you have the podcast and then you have the nonprofit. Can you speak a little bit more about the latter? Yep. So the podcast sits with my LLC, which allows me to kind of do um, speaking engagements and various work and professional development. Um, I'm literally in the midst of having a meet and greet, which I'm going to willfully welcome you to. It's a virtual meet and greet on the 20th of July. Um, and my hope is to make an announcement about my nonprofit and to literally take all those people I've been connecting with and having phone calls with. They're on the newsletter that I send out on every month on the 15th um, to get them to work with me now on my nonprofit side. So the nonprofit side is really about developing the network and synergy to do positive work going forward um, to get donations, to put that money towards purposeful things, to change um, the demographics for all students that are diverse, um, to just know that they're not alone and know that there's positivity out there and to just really put like a name to it as best as I can. So how much work has that been in creating the nonprofit side? Um I was kind of doing both. I talked to two separate people. One person was like, oh, you should do an LLC. The other one was like, you should do a nonprofit. And I was like, how hard can it be? I'll just do both. Um, so it's been, it's been a love child of getting websites built and um, getting ideas and trying to find the purpose. Um, some people have said just focus single-handedly on one thing, but I've kind of been like the buckshot approach of focusing on a bunch of things and saying something will stick. Um, so I'm going down that approach um, as I do my day-to-day job and stay balanced being a good advisor here and being a good husband and dad at home, um, but also um, making sure the admissions process is great here, but also working on what I really, really want to do in the end um, and creating positive synergy in this movement. This also kind of ties into one of the responses you gave me in the questionnaire I sent you in advance about having a tentative plan for life. Was all of this and everything you're doing right now a part of this tentative plan, or did you have no clue that you were going to end up doing any of this? I had no clue. Um Unfortunately, but fortunately, the death of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor inspired me. Um, sitting there and seeing someone put their knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds was crippling and really put a, a fire to me in a way as I went back to read the black ad accounts across the country from other independent schools, realizing that many of those postings would have been my posting had I had social media um, back then. And as a school administrator and a person that wants to be ahead of school one day, I couldn't sit idle watching and listening and reading those those bios and things and those issues of micro macroaggressions and not do something. So every type day that there may be a tough moment being at SAS or being a missions officer or being in education, I realized like I'm standing in the gap for someone, doesn't even have to be a diverse person, but some child to be an example for them. Um, but that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and I'm, I'm a runner. So I'm on Aubrey hurt as well. Um, just with diverse people not being given a chance to have their day in court, that things are just taken away from them disproportionately. That really hurt and pushed me on this path to doing what I'm doing every day. Do you feel like SAS is doing enough right now? I know we had George Floyd's remembrance and nothing was really done for that at SAS. Again, I don't want to step on any toes, but there's a moment where there's so much that can be said and done. And it's important to look at those items and be mindful of them as how they um, need to be emotionally engaged. 
Um, so yes, there is some frustration that two years passed and it was kind of just a quick flash moment. Um, but again, with the various school shootings and things that happened, it was difficult to prioritize that. Um, but even Buffalo happened as well with the loss of those lives and someone uh, succinctly going after a demographic of African-American people. Um, so um, every school is working and progressing. It's just a matter of trying to figure out uh, what to do and how to um, spin off all that energy. But I just ask that the energy needed on some of the diverse things are balanced in their approach everywhere. Yeah. Um, is there anything specific that you would want people to know about the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, for sure. I would like people to know, like many people that say, well, why are you doing this? Like, what makes you get up every morning to do it? Um, I gave a guest speaking appearance at a private school in New York earlier for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And part of the things that we spoke about was the fact that back in uh, 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, one day I want my four kids to be judged by the content of their character, but not the color of their skin. So everything that I do is holistically about that approach. It's about looking at people for their inner being of who they are and not making uh, misconceptions, um, not making assumptions, stereotypes. And that's really what this work is about, is looking at a demographic of people that are seen but unheard of many times, and they're not really spoken to in a positive way, and shine a positive light on that. And that's where my energy and where my purpose comes from, is really from those words from Dr. King. Yeah, um, very beautiful words. But what do you say to people trying to make that effort, but don't necessarily know where to start or how to do it? What do you say to those people? Um, for me, it's about explaining my vision and mission of wanting to put a spotlight on diverse learners um, for the next generation of people to come um, and wanting to lift things up that I um, got my MBA recently uh, last summer. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. It was a love child of two years during the pandemic um, and a childbirth as well. Um, but literally I learned about the North Star, about finding something that helps guide you in a way um, to help you make positive change. And that if you're doing something or participating in an organization or a place of work that doesn't have a North Star that you believe in, it might be time for a change. And for me, that's something that was very powerful in studying and learning about. And that's what led me to create my nonprofit in LLC. If you weren't doing any of the work you're doing, what do you think you would be doing right now? That's a looming question. That's a looming question. If I had the ability and if there were not kids and a wife because the job is not conducive to that, it'd be being a division one basketball coach. Um, right now, being a father and being a husband, most importantly, um, the four year stint that if I get to a job and doesn't go well, being able to change and move across country is not conducive to family. Uh, so Lauren, if you heard that as my wife, please know I love you. Um, but it'd be, it'd be, it'd be a division one basketball coach. So with, in all of the experience, all of the work that you've done, is there anything any piece of advice that you have for someone of my age or maybe to your kids? I would definitely say, again, have a plan that if we learned anything out of the pandemic, that things can change so abruptly um, in the drop of a dime for that March 20th deadline we had of go quarantine so you can get stuck in a rut for two years of the pandemic as well. Um, so have a plan and be willing to, one, stick with it, but at the same time be willing to, to pivot. Um, that a plan of craziness that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere is not just important to say, well, I made a plan, I'm going to stick with it because it's so important. And to have that plan be something of purpose. Um, again, it's all about doing things that can like keep you happy, not just for yourself, but also make other people happy as well. 
Well, it seems that regardless if you have this tentative plan or not, I mean, you've lived by your values. And in some ways, I feel like that is the plan of figuring out what your core values are and then going by that. Would you say that's true? It definitely is true. I'm putting pen to paper that one of the things I love to tell kids is always have a plan. And even in the admissions process, when you come visit SAS or another school like Northwest, make a pro-con list and write that down. And then go back and vouch for the list so you can make an informed decision. Um, because again, with planning, you should have plans and purpose is all, all the things you should do. So Jonathan, do you have a plan for what's next or a tentative plan at all? Uh, my plan here is to learn more about SAS in a full year, uh, getting further away from no masks. It's to go to T-Mobile Park and celebrate with these amazing seniors and what they've done and their accomplishments. It's to experience what it's like for what people say it doesn't rain as much in the summer here in Seattle. Um, and it's really building a new home for my wife and I and, and kids in the place we bought in Arbor Heights. Um, but I just want to experience Seattle. I want to experience SAS um, in the most positive light um, and learn about the Pacific Northwest as best as I can. It's exciting. Your first summer in Seattle. Enjoy it. <laughs> well, second summer. I had so the other. You had the heat wave. I had the heat wave. So again, I believe in global warming, but whatever is to be here, I'm excited for. And I'm excited to see your senior year as you navigate this leadership position of you and just you being yourself and seeing you guys have a repeat performance of more success in volleyball and everything. And to seeing what you can do as this leader here at SAS. You got some big shoes to fill, but I'm excited. I know you can do it. I appreciate that, Jonathan. Um, as we wrap up, I want to ask you one last question, which I, you know I, I'm going to ask you of this. Of course. <laughs> I've asked everyone this, which is, what is something that you have never told anyone before? Big or small? Oh, my goodness. I read that question and saw it, and I was like, ah, oh, she'll forget to ask it, and she did. Um, for me, I actually like being alone as much as I'm an extrovert I really like being solo like being on my own on my own time so yeah with all the tours I give and all the donuts I buy and all the podcasts I do and cold calling um, I really like to be alone and relax it's something that um, most people don't know I like to be solo have you heard of the term ambivert no I have not I believe and I might be incorrect in saying this, but I think it's not necessarily a hybrid of the two, but it's that you're incredibly sociable and enjoy the extroversion and are good at that, but are also a homebody at heart and are more so an introvert. I'm going to go look that up because I think that describes me because I can be on when I'm on, but when I'm off, I can just be in my little silo for a couple of days chilling and not have a problem with it. Well, that's what makes you you. And that's why we are all so appreciative of you in this community. Oh, and thank you. We love you. Not for your donuts, but we love you for all of the everything else that you do, the high fives, everything you. Thank you. So, Alan. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming and joining us today and talking with us. This was really a treat. Thank you. Everyone, stay tuned for more episodes to come. Next time will be our very final episode featuring two special guests also. And then it will be a wrap on season one of Humans of SAS. So look forward for more information to come.